what we're going to do this morning is we are going to move ahead considerably. This has been my intention all along. Uh, because as we've seen already that things become kind of repetitious uh, really very early on in the book. And, you know, my, my general practice is to preach all the way through books, but I opted not to do that uh, in this situation because I understand that there's a sense you get in the book where Job's basically just saying the same thing over and over again. He may be saying it in different means and whatever, but essentially it's the same message. And that is he simply cannot understand why he is suffering. Okay. The other thing is the message he's got from his, these three friends. Over and over again has been the same thing. That you're suffering because you're a great, you're a sinner and you're suffering a great deal because you are a very great sinner. And so what you need to do is acknowledge that and repent. And if you do that, then God's going to bless you all over again. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to skip over chapter 25. We're going to skip chapters 26 through 30. And we're even going to skip chapter 31. Because if you study those chapters, what you're going to find is basically this, you know, not exactly the same words, but the same message coming from those friends of Job and at the same time Job's response to them. Uh, and let me tell you, there's a sense in which it grieves my heart to do that uh, because I think very often we so easily want to hit on certain things in the Bible and skip over other things. Obviously, Job is one of those very difficult books. And I would imagine for many of us, it's been a very great mystery for a very long time and one that we don't really care to dwell, dwell, dwell into because maybe we're not those poetical kind of people, you know, and, uh, and that sort of thing. But we've, we've read Job very often maybe and we've been kind of confused about what the message really is because the message, the ultimate message of it is not exactly clear. So what we have to do is to dig through it and come to an understanding of the things that God would have us as New Testament believers glean from this important book. And I would say it's a very important book. Some people would say, no, it's not really that important. It's, it's kind of mysterious and this, that, and the other, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but... What I want to talk about this morning is self-righteousness. Uh, and I think probably this is the biggest and greatest message that, that any New Testament believer should glean from the book of, of Job. It is a caution, a very strong caution about self-righteousness. Because ultimately, this is what we get from the three friends of Job. They are self-righteous. But ultimately, it's also what Job is saying about himself. He believes that he has made the mark. It's easy for him to do that because of his reputation. You know, God has even said how great, uh, there's no greater person on the face of the earth than Job, my servants.
But I don't think Job is really dealing with the most essential, important aspect of what it means to be a sinner. Because you could use many things to kind of summarize what Job has said at this point, but it certainly sounds very much like he is being self-righteous. Have you ever heard the phrase righteous indignation? You've heard that before? I'll tell you what Webster's, how Webster's defined it. A feeling of shock and anger when someone believes that God is being treated unfairly. That's exactly what we're getting from those three friends of Job. Righteous indignation. A feeling of shock and anger when someone believes that God is being treated unfairly. That's the three friends of Job. Job, on the other hand, believes that God is treating him unfairly. But what you're finding with the the responses of these three friends is there's an intensification of what they say. In the the beginning, it was a little bit more gracious. Now it's becoming more matter-of-fact and blunt as it possibly could be. The intention becomes very clear that their purpose is to hurt Job in what they say. But in chapter 32, we find out some things we didn't know before. And one of those is this, is that at least, that at least one other person was listening to the conversations that were taking place here. Whether, whether this guy, this young guy named Elihu appears on the scene very suddenly is the only one or not, we don't know. There but it could have been a crowd of people that were sitting around listening to these conversations taking place between Job and his three friends. But there's a fellow named Elihu who who's probably has been very, uh, very much trying to uh, keep his mouth shut when he had obviously a lot to say about the things that other people were saying. He's a younger guy. He's a Buzzite of the family of Ram, which means he's very likely a Hebrew of Hebrew ancestry when all of these other guys were probably Edomites. He's a younger man. His name literally means God himself. Can you imagine being named something like that? He feels like at this point that he has no option but to respond in righteous indignation not only toward the three friends, which he does first, but also toward Job himself. So we're going to read what Elihu has to say that he answered this conversation. Uh, verse 30, or verse 1 in chapter 32. So these three men cease, cease to answer Job. We will have no more words from, from Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar at all. They're silent from this point on. 
because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older. In other words, he showed respect to these three guys for a time. Until they had said everything they had to say, he kept his mouth shut. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days uh, speak in many years teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened to your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job. This is the thing he, he's so upset about, is these three guys just did not do what they were supposed to do, and that was refute Job, or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his, his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches." They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The Spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that is no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all of my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue uh, in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears. I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. That's a, probably a pretty accurate statement of the position Job has taken. He's not misrepresenting Job at all. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that they may 
that he may turn man aside from his deed and concede pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite, the choicest food. His flesh, flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen in his bones uh, that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit in his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand declare uh, to, de- to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let, there, let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him, and he sees his face with a shout of Joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If I have uh, any words, answer me, speak, for, my, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me and be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear tests words uh, as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am Uh, the right and God has taken away my right in spite of my right I am counted a liar my wound is incurable though I am without transgression what man is like Job who drinks up the scoffling like water who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men for he has said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God which Job never does say Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of man, he will repay him. According to his ways, he will make it befall him. Uh, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself the spirit uh, in his his breath, our flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked men, or wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, at midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by human hand. Uh, I'm going to stop at that point. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But you get the drift. One of the things Elihu says is this. The first thing he does is he attacks Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
basically making the case against them that even though they thought that they could admonish Job and correct Job, etc., 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 that they didn't do that, that they failed. They failed in being these great wise men that they were supposed to be, that they were noted to be. They did not do what they needed to do. Uh, now let me just say this this morning that very often, it was really true in the ancient Near East that wisdom very often was associated with elderly people. In other words, if you wanted wise counsel from someone, the rule of thumb is that you went to an older person to seek their wisdom, to, to, to lay out things before them, to get input from them as to what the circumstances were and what you were to do about those circumstances, etc., etc., etc. I hope all of you have had older, wise people in your life uh, that you have been able to go to at times to seek their wisdom. But I will be honest with you this morning. I think this is an area where we have lost a lot of ground in more recent years. Uh, that what I say is, I, or what I see as I look out in the culture around us is not a lot of wise elderly people. All you have to do is consider this one statistic and it paints you the picture of what reality is and that is in the villages, which is strictly older people, they have one of the highest STD rates in the state. I would say this is an area where so many older people have lost their sense of contribution to the culture and the time in which they live. They've kind of distanced themselves from other people. Don't you think it might be insulting to some younger people when they begin to think about this whole village idea? And that is, why are they doing this? And the message that goes out to the young people is this, is they don't want to have anything to do with you. You are at best an inconvenience to them. That is the culture out there, but it cannot be true in the church. Another sad thing that's going on today is this, is more and more younger people are not going to the older people for wise counsel. Because even though some of those older, supposedly wise people don't see the big picture, they do. I would imagine that most of us in this room have had great influence by older people. The person that influenced me more than anybody else in my whole upbringing was my grandmother on my mother's side. If ever I needed wise counsel for someone, she would have been the person that I went to. The church... The world needs us to be those people. The problem with things like the villages is people develop the idea that I've worked my whole lifetime, I've done what I had to do, and other people told me what to do, etc., etc. Now I'm at a time in my life when I can do what I want to do.
Katie barred the door. That is not true for Christians. There does not come a time in our life when we have any right to separate ourselves from everybody else and just exist in our own little group. People come to us, they should be confident they are going to get wise and biblical counsel. And that is true whether we're older or we happen to be younger. One of the most amazing things is this, is even though Elihu just rakes Job over, first he rakes his three friends over the coals, and then he rakes Job over the coals, Job never even responds to him. He says his peace. And as far as Job's concerned, that's the end of it. And Elihu's comments are very patronizing between, toward these three men. He claims to have kept his mouth shut for a time out of respect for them. Huh. And maybe he did that, but once he starts talking, the floodgates open up. And there is no sense of respect he gives to them at all. And there is no respect that he gives to Job at all. He claims, in essence, to be divinely inspired in what he says. He also claims that he's going to say some different things. And the fact of the matter is, is he really, that's why we're not, we're not studying the whole thing, is because he basically just parrots back what these three men have said already. He doesn't add any new idea or anything to the mix. The same thing all over again. What he's doing is reasserting that retribution theology that we've heard from those other three guys, and that is that when you suffer, you're suffering because you've done something wrong, period. That all suffering comes as a result of wrongdoing on your part. And we know the gospel of Jesus Christ just shoots that right out of the water. One of the interesting things is this. Is God will respond to Job. And actually God briefly responds to those three friends. But he says nothing at all to this young whippersnapper Elihu. It's almost as if... God just ignores him. Well, what I want to talk about this morning is this. Is ultimately, as we've said before, that the, the, the root to all of this, the root of the circumstances that Job finds himself in and the root uh, of the circumstances that these three friends find themselves in and even Elihu, I guess, to some degree, is this. 
is they all have righteous indignation that is misplaced. Now, some of you never, never, maybe have never seen anything like this. And this is like people that are like on the verge of being extremely angry, getting up and speaking to things. Uh, one of the scary things about being righteously indignant can mean that you are very prideful and puffed up yourself. Now, let me tell you something. The only time I ever see much of this, you'll see something like this sometimes at Presbytery, but not even at Presbytery very often. If you go to General Assembly, you're going to see some of this. People who get up and think they have all the answers to everybody's problems. And they present their position on things in a very argumentative and angry tone. One that doesn't serve the purpose of bringing unity in the body, but really ticks off a bunch of people in the room. Because they come across as having all the answers. They know what is supposed to be done. They know exactly how to do it, etc., etc., etc. Because they have been enlightened to God, by God in ways that other people just simply have not been. There's a real sense of pride that very often comes through in it. And let me just say this. There are some things that really ought to upset every one of us. We should all, all, to some degree, understand what this concept of righteous indignation is. We should experience it to some degree ourselves. It comes about from the root of the idea that someone has, has done an injustice toward God himself. And let me just say this to you this morning, and that is we need people like that. We need people that help to keep us on track. I'm thankful for those brothers in the PCA that are almost on the verge of being legalistic in their approach even to the gospel. Because it helps me from drifting too far to the left. What I'm telling you is we need people like this for a lot of reasons, and one of those is this, is when, when you're sitting there and you're listening to it, what it does is it makes you, it forces you to recall the most important tenets and aspects of the very gospel itself. And you preach the gospel to yourself again, yet another time. We need people... <laughs> You know, the safe place for us to be, in a sense, is in the middle of the road. We've got, we have this denomination where we have people on one extreme, which are right on the verge of becoming very legalistic in their approach to everything. You have others over here that have a tendency to be so much about grace that nothing else at all matters. The fact of the matter is both things matter. And those people on the extremes keep us really more where we need to be so we're not drifting too far that way or drifting too far this way. And let me tell you, there is a place for real righteous indignation. And if you've never experienced it, you need to, <laughs> need to maybe think about some things. In other words, is there anything that, you, anything that you've ever seen as a believer that just really ticked you off because it was shedding a very negative light on God?
Well, I really believe this. You know, I, I started this study. I had reservations about doing it, believe me. I just did. Is it something that we're going to be able to really live much as New Testament believers? You know, it took place so long ago, and, you know, this, that, and the other, and Jesus has come in the meantime, and, uh, and everything that goes along with that. Are we really going to be able to glean that much from this book of Job? I want to read to you some things that Jesus says that help us in this picture. This is from Mark 2, chapter 17. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That speaks to both. He speaks, speaks to Job. Job is basically claiming he is sinless. This is something that Paul writes. Is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. You understand it's very easy for believers to be self-righteous. As a matter of fact, it's our tendency to be that way. Let me ask you something. Do you yourself see yourself as the foremost of all sinners? Or do you look upon other people with judgmental eyes and send them as being nastier or dirtier than you are? I mean, do we have to any degree that God, getting me, got a really good deal? See, I really believe this, that this is a main reason God brought me here is this, is he wants us to deal with our own self-righteousness. Which, by the way, we all have. Every one of us. It's so easy for us to see how other people are and at the same time to be blind completely to ourself. I mean, right where you are this morning, do you see yourself as a sinner in need of repentance and ongoing repentance? Would you describe yourself, have you ever described yourself as the chief among sinners? Has the thought even ever crossed your mind? You understand that every one of us, that should be our perspective? Because we know ourselves like no one else does. We know all those thoughts, we know all those things that we do, we know etc., etc., etc. How many people that know you would describe you as being self-righteous?
We need to see ourselves, not other people. Don't be looking around at the people around you. I want you to be looking at your own heart this morning. Do you, in any sense of the word, see yourself as the chief among sinners? You need to understand something. Paul did not write that early in his ministry. He wrote this almost at the end of his life. So he was growing in Christ. He didn't see himself less and less as a sinner. He saw himself more and more as a sinner. We need to be mindful of all this all the time because it helps to protect us from some things. And one of those is judgmentalism toward other people. It's so easy to judge other people when we're self-righteous. It's very easy to see the sins of other people and at the same time to blindly look over our own. So we need to commonly, very often, consider ourselves. Because that alone will protect us from being judgmental of other people. Another thing it does for us is this, is it, and we need for this to happen frequently, to be driven back to the foot of the cross once more. Regardless of anybody and everybody else, as you are there at the foot of the cross, understand that if Jesus had determined only to save you, he would have had to endure everything that he did for you. We should be unbelievably humbled by the great sacrifice that was made to save us. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing, always ongoing, and vital part of the Christian life. That, let me just say to you this morning that, that without it, you may think that you're walking very closely with God, but I can tell you definitively you aren't. You're kidding yourself. You may have the idea that you're growing as a Christian, but let me tell you, if there's not repentance, continued ongoing repentance in your life, then you're only kidding yourself. As we grow older, our sins should become clearer to us, not more vague and and almost non-existent from our perspective. Let me read you this parable spoken by our Lord Jesus. He is told, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Is there a better description of those three friends than Elihu at this point? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
But the tax gatherer standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Honestly, honestly. Which of those two characters are you more like? I think one of the biggest problems the church has today is it's filled up with self-righteous people. And it's always been true. Not something just new in our day. It's so easy for us to lose our grip of the gospel. And I think the very best thing for every one of us to do is to constantly, repeatedly preach the gospel to myself. Constantly. Daily, hourly. We were talking this morning a little bit about Jack Miller, and some of you have heard that name spoken before, and others have not. Uh, he was the founder of the New Life Churches in Philadelphia, PCA churches, and they were the ones who started World Harvest Mission, which went to a Uganda. And you know, when Lori and I went there, it was a, we went we were with World Harvest Mission. Uh, uh, we were there. Jack was uh, a very humble guy. He was not really that impressive of a guy. You know, if you sat down and just had a conversation with him, you're going, this is Jack Miller. <laughs> How in the world is it this guy's motivated all these people to do so very much for the kingdom of Christ? Uh, just not a really, really impressive person. Not very big, you know, short in stature and, uh, and that sort of thing. But I shared this in Sunday school. One of the things... <laughs> that he did, I mean, he, he shocked people. He was driving to his church one night. They were having a worship service at night, and, and, he, and he came across this situation where these young men were harassing this, uh, this woman who was pushing around one of the shopping carts, and everything that she owned was in it. So this, this woman that was in bad, bad situation, etc. And they were they were harassing this woman. And he stopped and there was a gang of them. It was just one or two. It was a gang of these guys. And he scolded these young men. And at the very end of what he said, he looked at him and he said, We're having church on Sunday morning. I expect every one of you to be there. And the most shocking thing happened. They came, and one of them became his son-in-law. His wife's name was Rosemary. She just recently passed away, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but Jack used to talk about her on occasion, and what he would always call her was she's the recovering Pharisee. <laughs> Uh, she, she grew up in a church that was very legalistic. And so her whole approach to Christianity when she came into Jack's life, Jack's life was very works-oriented. Uh, 
and that sort of thing. And so, so Jack always described her as the recovering Pharisee because she was well into her years before she ever heard diddly squat about things like grace. It was all about your doing, all about you keeping the rules, all about you keeping the regulations and this, that, and the other. But let me tell you, for grace, for Rosemarie, grace transformed her. And it's the only thing that has the power to transform a sinner. It's the only thing that will change you. It's the only thing that can change you. Would you say with me this morning, I'm saved by God's grace and God's grace only. Can you say that? Remember it. Let me tell you, if we don't keep grace in the forefrontals of our mind, then we are just like Job, and we're just like the three friends, and we're just like Elihu. Sadly, we live in a church today that very rarely even talks about grace. Understand, there are Christians out there, they have probably never in their whole Christian experience ever heard a word about God's grace. And even if they had, it's been presented in a manner that it's not really biblical. Because what they would say is God offers the grace to everyone, and all you have to do is reach out and grab the grace. But that's not what we believe, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God gives grace willfully and purposely to certain people. Period. That is biblical. It's not something I made up. It's not something the reformers made up. It's not something the PCA has made up. God saves sinners, period. He's the only one who can, and he's the only one that does. You understand that's what this table's all about, is grace. Jesus is the very definition of God's grace. So I just pray and I hope this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together that we're mindful of that and that we we forget about our arrogance and we forget about our own sense of self-pride and this, that, and the other and that we maybe for the first time in our life really truly be broken by what we caused. We did this. And God could have responded by throwing all of us into hellfire for all of eternity, and that would have been perfectly justifiable for him to do that. But he didn't. He showed us grace. That's the only thing that separates us from the most awful, terrible person in the world. God's grace.